0: Mysterious Woods, a podcast by Squatch Dogs. There are many a great mystery on this planet, but none so compelling as those that happen in the cover of darkness. The woods will come alive as we unravel the secret she holds. Here are your hosts, Ann Walls and Big Dog Mendoza.
1: Everybody, Welcome to Mysterious Woods. I am your host, Ann. And
0: Big Dog.
1: And Big Dog. Woof, woof, woof. Big Dog's in the house. How's uh, your week been?
0: It's been alright. It's been uh, hectic. We got more work than we, what we know what to do with. We're trying What's to going? hire people. What? Yeah, we're trying to get people to come in and help us, but oh my god, I don't know where these people are crawling on
1: Cholos. We, you need everything. some Cholos. We,
0: and we, had, we had an old dude come in with a ponytail. What's like, his
1: name? First I name. Oh. I know a ton of people.
0: He looked like a biker guy. So I didn't really mess with him too much. He looked like he would break him <laughs>
1: off. Look like he might slit your throat. Yeah, he looked kind of mean. You're crazy. Know.
0: I think we're gonna try them out. I don't
1: know. Well, good. You should always give older people an opportunity. Yeah, I've been the uh, I've been on the receiving end of discrimination because I'm older.
0: And yeah, the younger folks is not working out for me.
1: Cause they, they want, don't like, work.
0: They want a million dollars, but they don't do anything.
1: Yeah, I hear you. Well, we have a really good show tonight. And this is right up your alley. I know that you like uh, UFO stuff. So we have Daniel Allen Jones on the show tonight. And he's going to talk to us about the Cash Landrum case. So welcome to the show, Daniel.
2: Hey, Ann. Hey, Big Dog. I'm glad to be with you guys, close friends of mine here. And it's great to be part of your Mysterious Woods show because... I have had a great time listening to the other shows. I really like the one you guys had with you, Big Dog, talking about your trip out to Marfa. And you guys also had Jeff Stewart talking about the uh, Texas Goat Man. And and, uh, it's just an awesome time to be able to listen and now participate and be a part of this with you guys. So thanks for having me.
1: Well, we're glad you're here.
0: Yes,
2: sir.
1: Well, I have to... I'm sorry. Go ahead, Big Dog.
0: I said we're doing Texas... UFO stuff.
1: Yeah. We, and the reason I'm most interested in this is because Daniel calls me and says, Hey, there's this Houston Mufon event going on in Dayton. Do you want to go? And I was like, Well, yeah, it's, you know, right down the road from me. So we went, and I was actually quite surprised at the events that happened that night. They took us on a, a Greyhound-type bus and took us on a tour of the Cash Landrum case. And there's quite a bit of information I didn't even know about. And so I live in Huffman, and Daniel, he can tell the story and uh, tell us about Cash Landrum and what you know about it.
2: Sure, yeah, and that was a really interesting event because I didn't really know all the details of what was going to happen or really what how it was supposed to happen all I knew was it was going to be sort of a gathering of some of the local um, or just the Texas MUFON groups, and then we were just going to go sightseeing over some of the different places that Betty Cash, Vicky, and Colby Landrum had been able to go drive across that day, and uh, you know many years ago. And so when we got there, it was a great meeting, and we got to you know connect with some other people. And then, like you said, we just happened to have a great big tour bus waiting for us to go. I thought we were all going to carpool. Didn't really know, but that was great to be able to do. I I really enjoyed it. So going over to some of those old country roads was a little bit treacherous, but we made it, and it was a good time. We all got out, and uh, some of those places have changed a lot since 1980, as you know. But it's something that I think really, as far as— Cases regarding UFOs, this one stands out as significant, in my view, and probably those of, of many um, you know, reporters or, or investigators throughout the years who really look into this stuff seriously, the Cash Landrum UFO incident really does have some incredible components that I think are not just important in, in what happened to them as people, but not just what they saw. Uh, many things, medical issues, all this kind of stuff, which we're going to be taking a closer look at here in a bit. And I do have a companion here on reference. It's um, the, basically the the book that was written by John Schusler. It's called The Cash Landrum UFO Incident. Three Texans are injured during an encounter with a UFO and military helicopters. And this is a really good source book because John Schusler was a part of um, the local MUFON group there in Houston, as well as some of the other organizations that helped to provide information about this case, um, he's still alive. Um, Betty Cash and Vicky Landrum are no longer alive. Colby Landrum is alive. He does not really make appearances or really get on shows or anything. Although there are some out there you can listen to, he's not easily obtainable for something like that. And uh, you know, it's something I think that really traumatized all of these three people for the rest of their lives. And and unfortunately, a very tragic story. Um, MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network, investigated this, and it's something that really is a a big eye-opener when it comes to UFO cases because, again, it's not just something like a light in the sky or just a flying saucer story this had physiological implications upon the the witnesses or even victims you could say um and they went out of their way to try to figure out everything they could about this there's a lot of information that was uncovered and it just goes to show that this is a very serious case it's not just a fly by the night kind of a interesting encounter in the sky that you know you just have happened one time and it's kind of a fun story These people had some uh, incredible health implications that affected them for the rest of their lives. So let's just go from the beginning, and what I'll do is I'll describe some of the different things that led up to the event. I have the the book here by John Schusser that I'm going to use um, so that I'm not misquoting some of the things that these people actually said during their initial investigation. I think it's really important so that I don't um, you know, muddy the waters, or misquote, or mislead anyone you know who who otherwise may not really know about this case, um, so they don't get a wrong impression about what happened. Or I'm not yeah, kind of filling in the gaps. I think it's it's understand. a good way to kind of to to use this work in in a way that not only shows that he was uh, John Chusser was meticulous in documenting this case, but following up with these people in a way that he wanted to make sure that they were. Um, you know, taken care of and, and compensated and, and supported the best way that they could, because what happened to them, as we'll find out, is, again, really tragic. It's very unfortunate, and hopefully there will be some kind of uh, uh, some something that will help to turn this case over eventually. I don't know that that will ever happen, but there are some pretty significant signs of, of what people think did happen that have come down throughout the years, but We'll see. So let's just get right into it. Basically, you have Betty Cash and Vicky Landrum, along with Vicky's grandson, Colby Landrum, all in their Cutlass. It was a vehicle that they were driving in, and, and I'm going to be referring to some of these things here. I might jump back and forth, but the main thing to keep in mind is they're they're driving up through... Uh, through Cleveland, and they're trying to find different places to go play some games. Um, Basically, they weren't just out sightseeing, like, looking for UFOs, of course. They were actually going through New Caney. Um, They were trying to find some places outside of uh, Cleveland because it was a Monday night, and that's when they basically had their game night at the Legion Hall. And this was Monday, December 29th, 1980. And this was, uh, you know, about 8 p.m., getting a uh, closer to the top of the hour around 9 p.m. They weren't able to find any games, any uh, anything to really do, so they decided to head on back. And in doing so, this is where they had their initial encounter. So there are different farm roads, and for those of you here nearby, and of course, and you know, being in Huffman, this is this is familiar territory. Um, yeah. You've got places like. In Dayton, they're heading back toward uh, east toward Dayton on State Farm Road FM 1485, and this is kind of where things went awry. Basically, Colby is the one who had the initial sighting, and she's asking Aunt Betty, "What is that?" And of course, Vicky is his grandma, but also was a lot like his mom in many ways. That they grew up together, and it was something that you know they were close um, in doing so. Basically, it's important to note that while they were driving, they had the radio on. It wasn't really a, a big focal point, but it, it was on. They were listening to some, maybe some country music, something kind of soft in the background. It had been raining and drizzling a little bit earlier that day. But by that time of, of night, it was just uh, chilly, about 40 degrees. You know, it's winter by that point, And, uh, you know, it wasn't really raining so much at that moment, but... What you have happened, this again, this is being that we're on Mysterious Woods, this is right there in the piney woods. This is a a road that has large pine trees on both sides looking dead ahead. You just have walls of pine trees as long as you're going. You can just see the sky up ahead of you. So as far as they could tell, they were the only vehicle on the road. It was uh, getting dark by that time of the year. The sun's not up for that long and they started to notice something there was a red glow on the horizon and it was just getting bigger and bigger and colby was getting curious because he noticed it before they did and he's saying see grandma what is that what's going on and that's when they noticed something unusual and they didn't really know they're just trying to drive and they said maybe it's two planes maybe it's something uh, two planes collided and uh, it's kind of a you know not too big of a deal to them saying I don't know what it is it's uh, you know causing the sky to light up they were going about 50 to 55 miles per hour but then they started to slow down as this was uh, becoming more noticeable to them and eventually it became uh closer and closer as it basically was at a standstill and they'd go another few miles and see it, it they lose sight of it going through the trees really tall trees and, you know this is something that really helps to give you a perspective of Their point of view when they were driving is that, you know, you can see it a little bit, but the trees concealed it somewhat. But they found out it was enormous. They saw this object in the sky, and Colby became terrified. Basically, what they saw seemed to be a glowing object, and it was reflective. It seemed to be very shiny. Colby seems to describe it as having been diamond-shaped. So as they're getting closer and they're going down these rows, they became about 150 feet from the object. And Vicky had to brace herself against the dashboard to keep uh, Colby from being thrown forward. And, uh, you know, if they had gone up a little bit further, they say they would have been burned up. They could feel the heat being, uh, you know, emanating from this object, this mist dewy object directly in front of them It's now hovering. The object was shooting flames from the underside you imagine a diamond that's sort of facing up and down the two points kind of ended uh, rounded off at the ends just a conical shape with fire coming out the bottom side Vicky driving couldn't even see the road and couldn't really go Revere side to side around it this thing uh, started to come down and basically get in their way they didn't want to back up they couldn't really see uh Vicky's telling Colby that it's, it'll be all right. Everything's going to be okay. And then looks at Betty to say, it looks like this is the end of the world. The forest looked like it was all on fire. Extremely lit up. It was just a really crazy incident at this point. Uh, and so Vicky looks like she's going to get out. And Colby, of course, is screaming frantically, telling her to not, not get out of the car. Grandma, don't go. She's really just trying to figure out what it is, get a closer look. The bright glare was uh, nearly blinding, and it seemed to come, you know, from the flames that periodically gushed out from the bottom of the object. And the issue with this is that they saw this, and then things eventually came to their awareness that weren't initially um, perceivable. And and then you know the flames coming out were extremely hot. There was this immense heat from this object that was one of the first things they noticed when they were in the vehicle in the cutlass. So they said it also as these flames were just sputtering down that it made this whooshing sound like air brakes from a truck. And every time it did this, it would kind of rise up 20 or 30 feet and settle back down. The flames would subside, but they would periodically keep doing this. Uh, It would eventually emit this, shrill beeping sound at irregular intervals, and uh, this would actually hurt their ears. At this point, Colby was crying uncontrollably. He was just so distraught that, you know, this whole situation was happening. It was very difficult for them to maintain, like, a a very collected uh, mood or attitude. And so they were so hot that they felt like they were perspiring. They wanted um, Vicky to get back in the car and she was hugging him tightly. Basically, they were just really unsure about what even was going on at this point. And it was such a distressing thing to experience that Vicki would look at Colby and say, and these are quotes, Baby, you look real close, right at the center of that thing. If you see a big man come out, that's going to be Jesus. He's not oh, going wow. to hurt you. He'll carry us into a better place. Don't be afraid. You look straight at it and just keep your eyes on it. And when you see something come out of it, it will be Jesus. He's not going to hurt us. He's going to come after us. There's no way that God will ever hurt anybody. So this is, you know, different things could be interpreted by this. You could say that maybe she thought it of a religious experience. Maybe she was trying to de-escalate the situation and calm down Colby. But obviously this is very traumatic for everybody involved. Um, there's crying. He's saying, where's Papa? You know, this is just such a very traumatic event at this point. The object is not far in front of them, again, emitting searing heat, very bright. And they would uh, eventually have Betty step out. And she's, you know, stepping a foot so closer to the car. And as she went to put her hand down on the hood, she described the metal as blistering hot. and It was just not really something they even thought would would happen. And uh, as she went back to the car door, the handle was too hot. So she had to use her leather coat to open up the door. And they were really worried. You know, Vicky screaming at Betty. Why'd she do that? Why'd she get out? She just thought she'd try to get a closer look. And uh, they were really terrified about this whole incident. And so more flames are shooting out and they thought that it was about to come up and go over the trees, and it seemed like the object was leaving. Now, this is the initial impression that these people had, was this strange, diamond-shaped, glowing object sputtering, seeming to be in mechanical distress, fire coming out of the bottom, just being scorched by the heat. So as this took place... The object seemed to start going up a little bit, and they started to notice a few more sounds in the ambience. Uh, the woods and the highway were still brightly lit, and it seemed like it started to move south a little bit toward Galveston. And even though the flames weren't really coming out, eventually as it started to ascend into the air, uh, they said that it still glowed very brightly, even to the extent of it seeming like it was a hot iron or an anvil. That's when they noticed that the sound that sort of turned into a background noise, almost like white noise, it became a little bit more apparent to them at this point. This chopping sound, this thunderous noise, was actually several helicopters all around and above and around this object. And that's when Betty says, "Vicky, there's helicopters chasing that thing. And there were some with a single rotor, several with two large rotors, and basically these were identified later on as being Chinooks. But this was very interesting. It was pretty curious because they had never seen helicopters this large, and especially with two rotors. They were trying to figure out how many they were, what they were doing. And the cutlass, as they saw that the object was kind of taking off, that was their opportunity to sort of get things to gear, put it back in drive, and and take off but they didn't realize that it actually had killed the engine and that the Cutlass had died. So at this point, they had to start up the car again, and they realized that uh, you know it looked like the helicopters were either trying to help them or hem it in or trying to figure out what was going on with the object. So without or try to get above it, if not anything else, they were there because of this object. So that's a really interesting part of this case is that Not only did they see an object, they see some kind of UFO, but you have military-style helicopters all around it. So they're terribly frightened, and they look over, more helicopters are coming. It distracts them so much that as Betty was driving, uh, Vicky tells her, you better watch where you're going, or you're going to drive us right into the ditch. So, they're trying to pay attention to the road, but this object and the helicopters are still so distracting, it's hard for them to focus. Um, And they eventually say one thing's for sure they're either they know what that thing is or they're trying to find out. And Betty says, well, they must know what it is or they wouldn't be there. So, you know, whether that's the case or not, that's how they interpreted these events. And about two miles further down the road, and this eventually turns west onto FM 2100 they realized that they were driving kind of through this area with an open field, and they didn't have any intention on getting closer, but they could still see it in plain sight. This is where they started to attempt to count the helicopters. And at this point, they said they could count about 23, at least 23 helicopters, all black, um, eight CH-47 Chinook helicopters. And there were several others. They seemed like that basically they, again, were looking to either assist the object or do something with it. Um, the noise and the vibration they described as being horrendous, uh, it was incredibly overwhelming for them. And uh, at the point where they were on the road, off to the right, looking through the trees and uh, having kind of a clearing, they could see it was visible. At this point, they were at the Huffman Eastgate Road and FM 1960. So 23 helicopters was kind of their estimate, their count, some, you know, they counted were 20 to 25, but they didn't want to keep counting helicopters, so they basically tried to get out of there. And unfortunately, this was kind of a discrepancy because we don't know exactly how many, but they said at least at least 23 of these were all around them. So after they were driving on FM 1960, heading back home toward Dayton, suddenly they realized that the radio had just come back on. And no one had touched it. No one had done anything. They realized that they hadn't heard anything from it, not even static. So something strange about the radio coming on and off, uh, you know, you hear in different instances and in different cases sometimes and and maybe in stories. Well, this actually was the case with their vehicle. And uh, they were just ready to go back to Dayton and just be done with the whole thing and still afraid that the object was coming after them. Uh, Eventually... Colby says, we never did see Jesus, did we, Grandma? And she says, no, baby, we didn't. Okay. Uh, soon, unfortunately, they say, you know, feel like my body is scorching, my eyes burn, uh, feels like my uh, head's going to come off, and their eyes became puffy and irritated. They started to feel nauseated and abdominal cramps. When they got back to Dayton, they essentially... Just thought, let's just, I'm so upset, we need to go home, we need to uh, get inside, lock the doors, and I just, they literally say, I feel like I could die. So, when they get home, this is where a lot of the really messed up things happen health-wise. Basically, they think, you know, they don't want to have anything to do with what they saw, what they encountered, or witnessed, but unfortunately, the health effects and the physiological implications were a constant reminder of this nightmare for them. Uh, So Vicky and Colby just felt as if they had been out in the sun and pretty much all day long, and uh, they just felt like it was a really bad sunburn. Basically, Betty felt like she had lumps all over um, basically her head and her neck and her arms. She didn't really know what it was or that it was connected in any way. But unfortunately, they would soon find that they were swollen and covered in blisters. And uh, it's something that we see a lot of times with other illnesses. So that's also a factor. We can't rule that out. But basically, they were reluctant to go to any medical institution, any medical facility, for the sake of being laughed at. She thought, uh, basically... Betty and, and Vicky thought that they were going to be laughed at if they told anyone it would happen to them. And unfortunately, that really was the case, as they would find out. Uh, they were still suffering you know, severe headaches, as well as nausea, diarrhea, blisters all over their head, neck, and back. Their eyes were swollen shut, and they basically told, decided not to tell anyone. And Vicki told her grandson, Colby, not to say anything to anyone. It was just one big nightmare that wouldn't end. They just didn't really want to have anything to do with it. And unfortunately, um, Betty became hospitalized. And upon, you know, talking to doctors, they didn't really want to say anything about the encounter out of reluctance. Um, they had a lot of uh tests, x-rays, or at least Betty did initially x-rays, EEGs, CAT scans, which didn't really show any abnormalities at first. Uh and then unfortunately Betty started losing her hair. And uh, it was just really unfortunate what she was going through over the next several months. But her daughter came from Dallas to visit her, and she literally says, I didn't even know it was my mother. I had to walk out and look at the door to make sure you know, that the, she had the right door number. Um, and it was very unfortunate. They just didn't look the same. And it, they were covered in blisters, just very badly maimed by this encounter. And... Uh, while there could be some contributing factors, a lot of the medical records and and medical investigation that was done, they decided that you know basically that this instance, their encounter may have triggered a loss of immunity and then you know a greater chance at catching diseases and all of this stuff because of what they had happened. They didn't really want to just say that it, it all was because of this, but that it did have something to play. as reluctant as they were at first, one of the doctors basically said, "I have never had any experiences in dealing with a patient that's been exposed to a UFO." Um, you know, and although the other doctors would laugh, he actually did take it seriously. But a dermatologist said that one of the problems was uh, alopecia areata, and which is a baldness disorder. But that basically was, I think, you know, some people consider a way to write off what she experienced when some medical personnel and physicians just didn't want to accept that. Whatever they encountered had anything to do with their illness or these illnesses that they acquired. And unfortunately, better never uh Betty never regained her health. Um, she lost weight, and it was a really a just a decline from there on out. Eventually they decided that the dermatologist said that what they had been suffering from was radiation exposure, and that uh uh, The doctors essentially had to admit that this instance triggered the events um, and that there was no doubt that they were exposed to radiation and that they were both left in a weakened state that lowered their immunity and and, uh, lowered their resistance to illness and disease. Now, there are a lot of other issues that had come up with this. Basically, they want to find out what's going on. Um, They essentially... Wanted to uh, Vicky and Colby. They didn't seek medical help at first because Vicky thought, well, you know, if uh, you know. By the way, Colby, he's having all these issues health-wise as well. They're getting headaches. They can't even take a bath because it's just too terrible to feel. Um, And he started wetting the bed. He was seven years old at this time, and it's just one of the things that was completely mysterious. Uh, that this would just start happening for no reason other than their their experience. And uh, they basically decided, well, why would we go to the doctor when they couldn't do anything for Betty? Why would they put themselves through that? They couldn't figure out what was going on. And uh, there were times where something just as simple as a a helicopter flying over would send Colby into hysterics. And unfortunately, that had basically traumatized him for several years as a child. and he would see things in the sky that he would get worried about start asking and they had to calm down and say it's just an airplane don't worry so soon after you know into the following months into the next year of 1981 this is where the initial investigation begins where they started to kind of reach out go out of their way to figure out what's going on and they made calls they tried to figure out what what the proper channels were to really get into this and understand what they need to do in order to kind of, at least, if not anything else, find out who was responsible. Um, they did notice upon looking at some of the helicopters some kind of round insignia, which gave them the impression that these were military. They weren't sure if it was Air Force, Army, or what, but they knew it seemed to have been something military-related. So they decided to contact a few different people and just figure out what was going on. Um, Vicky thought Betty was going to die for sure, and this is all very traumatizing for them. They call up some of the different contacts that they had, and one of them, unfortunately, uh, they just didn't really take it seriously, but they said, oh, well, we have a, a UFO number somewhere here in the office we can give you. And this is interesting to note that Vicky actually told them that she didn't think it was a UFO, she says, Mr. Waring, I think that it was something the government had up there, and I'd like to have it, uh, and it, you know, it'd like to have fallen on us. And so they thought that this was out to really get to them, and they were kind of afraid. So there were a few groups, including MUFON, that they eventually were going to get in touch with about this to figure out what was going on. Basically, they got in touch with uh, NASA, and they didn't, they said that, you know, they assured her that. NASA owned no helicopters and didn't know what the object was. And so that left her up to, you know, by this point, it's about February, and she's calling around to kind of figure out who they can get in touch with. And eventually, toward the end of February, they got a hold of Mr. Schuessler, who is the author of this book, that basically breaks this case down very uh, meticulously in a way that you can kind of look at each of the different aspects from medical, to investigation by the military and the government. it's There's a lot of great stuff with this. I recommend for anyone who's interested to pick it up. Again, it's called The Cashlandrum Landrum UFO Incident by John Schuessler. Um, he's been an ongoing investigator for MUFON and, and other uh, organizations and independent work as well. But this is something that really kind of turned things around for them because this is where they started to think about how can we pursue this as a legal case. How can we go out of our way to find out more about what had happened, if anyone else knew anything about it, and who was responsible for this, which caused them a great ordeal of medical issues? Now, I'm going to go over um, some statements. So there's some transcripts that were made by both Betty Cash and Vicki Landrum and Colby Landrum. I'm going to reiterate these for just posterity here. This is Betty Cash. On December of the 29th, approximately about 9 to 9.30, a friend of mine and her grandson had been to a Cleveland to try to play bingo. On a return home, we faced an object. We came through New Caney, came out, went to eat. I never felt better. I had no illness, none whatsoever. We took a shortcut back to Dayton, and it was the Huffman and New Caney Road. At this time, we had spotted something in the air that was long, looked like the sky just split open. In fact, I thought the world was coming to an end. It was bright, the lights were bright, and there was a lot of heat coming from this object. We stopped and tried to see what it looked like. We could not get up close to detect what the figure was. Or I couldn't, at, at least. The lights were too bright and in my eyes. So I stood with my arms on the window and the door... And on top of the car trying to see, but at this time the heat was too intense, so I got back in the car. I started the car up, and about the same time the object went up into the sky. It was red and lit up all over. It looked just like the whole sky was open and lit. But there was quite a few helicopters circling around. I don't know whether they were trying to get around it or up closer to it or what, to see maybe what it was. I got back into the car, and the car was so hot, it was unreal. It was just like you had run into an oven. When we got to the corner of 1960 and this Huffman-Crosby Road, we had a stop sign. We stopped and waited for traffic, which was none or any that we were paying that much attention to. We were too busy watching the object. But at this time, I counted 23 helicopters around and about the object. They were far away, but yet they were, were low enough that we sat there and watched them till they got over the car because I wanted to make sure if it was airplanes or if it was helicopters, which it was helicopters, I counted 23 of them. I don't know what color they were, I can't say. But I do know that they had double deal on the top, propeller-like thing. I couldn't hear them, all right, and I could hear them, just plain as if they were right ready to land. And at the time, I turned left on 1960 and went to New Caney, I mean Dayton. I let Vicki and her grandson out, and I went home, which took maybe 30... 20 to 30 minutes, and I had big knots coming up on the back of my neck and on my head. I was just deathly sick. Well, I went to be thinking, well, you know, that I might be taking the flu. I had no idea what was the cause of it because I felt so good that day. But the next morning I tried to get out of bed and get a drink of water, and I wasn't even able to get out of bed. Every time I touched my head, it was just like it was. I was coming unglued. Well, I stayed there till Vicki got off that afternoon. She came down and got me water and milk and things for the day. When she got home from work, she came down and picked me up and carried me to her house, and I stayed there for four days before I went to the doctor. She finally made me say I would go to the doctor, and she called Dr. Shinoi and asked him if he would take me if he would see me at the emergency room, that there was something terribly wrong with me. Well, he agreed. She brought me to the emergency room. At this time I was swollen so bad my ears had even looked like they were fixing to burst. Those knots on my head bursted and they were just like blisters, just like uh you would burn your head with something, it would make like a water blister. Well they checked me into the hospital. They said they didn't know what it was, and little admission nurse asked me if I had if I was a burn victim. I told her no, that I just took I just took sick and I had no idea what it might be so they admitted me to the hospital and I was there 12 days. At the end of the 12 days three doctors told me that they still had no earthly idea of what it might be. I went home. I didn't feel good the entire time I was home, but it did say one week and I thought well maybe it would be getting better. At the end of that week I was so deathly sick again I had to come back into the hospital in the the uh meantime from the time I had entered the hospital into the time I re-entered the hospital, almost all of my hair had come out just in a great big patches. It's completely bald, practically, and I began. The doctor asked me to see some uh, betadine for shampooing it, but not to put any hairspray on it at all, which I don't have enough to spray. That's all I have used since I was last dismissed from the hospital. Well, today is my seventh day here and still can't tell me what's wrong. They've took x-rays, they've done everything. I guess they know to do for me, but yet they can't come up with an answer as to what caused it. Well, I know that's caused it because I had never been in that predicament before and I've never been that sick. So I know exactly what caused it, but of course the doctors here can't seem to find it. They said they've never seen anything like it. My eyes are still burning, my vision's not clear. It it feels as if though I've got a skin over my eyes, I went to an eye doctor He said that he could not tell what it was, uh, an overdose of radiation at this time or not, that it would be real uh, a little early in order for him to tell that, and it would take some time. So other than this and that, all I know is that I know for a fact that the object, whatever it may be, is what caused my illness, and if you all have any information that could help me in any way, I would be most appreciative. So again, that was a statement by... Betty Cash. Now this following is a statement by Vicky Landrum. My name is Vicky Landrum. On December 29th, 1980, Betty Cash and my seven-year-old son, Colby, and me was coming from New Caney by the Huffman and New Caney Road. Betty was driving when all at once something came down. It looked like the whole sky split ahead of us. We stopped. She got out of the car and stood for I don't know how long, but my son and me go out on the other side and stayed for only a minute or two. The little boy, which has just turned seven, was screaming about having to have a heart attack. So I got back in the car and took him to my arms. I told him it might be Jesus coming after us. If he saw a man, not to be afraid, he would be coming to carry his stuff to a better place. The whole road ahead and around it was glowing as if by fire. I believe it was fire. It glowed down and let up a little. Or if it was, as if it was, it was coming from an old object up above. Colby swore it looked like a big diamond. I couldn't tell, for I was so, square, so scared about him. I didn't know how long it would be before it would all be over. It lifted, and I knew it was at least half a mile or across before the main part of the light. The object was bigger than the water tower, and inside the car it was so hot I turned on the air conditioner. But when Betty got back in the car, there were some helicopters up there. As so I lifted where we could travel from Farm Road 2100, we stopped by the church and looked and we looked again which way it was going and veered ahead to the right of us. There were helicopters there. We turned on to 1960 in nineteen sixteen Huffman Road. We got to nineteen sixteen, stopped again and counted twenty to twenty-five helicopters up there. I could have it could have been more or less. I was so upset really, it didn't matter, I didn't care. The helicopters had two deals on the top place of one. We got home and my eyes and face was burning like it had been sunburned. I know it wasn't making up for I don't wear any, or I w- I know it wasn't makeup for I don't wear any. Colby's eyes and face was red, like he'd been in the sun. I put baby oil on both of us for I figured it was the wind outside that burned us. I hope and pray that is all. Betty is in terrible shape and I as been since last night. I tried for four days to get a doctor to see her, but being the holiday, no one would see her for she had. A uh, heart patient no doctor in here would have the liberty to touch her. The morning, fourth morning, she looked so bad her face would swell and her head hurting so bad she was out of her mind. I talked to her and I said, Betty, there are some doctors here that can tell me about this. She told me about her doctor, which I called and said it was Dr. Shunoi. And I called her and carried her to the emergency room and thought it was blood clots or something. I didn't believe she wouldn't live until I got her to the doctor. But the doctors can't take him from there. And somewhere, somehow, in some way, maybe somebody can do something for her. She's only a friend, and I'll do the best I can. But if somebody knows how to treat her, how to help her in some way, please God, in heaven, have mercy upon her, and let her live. So that was Vicki's statement. And we're going to take a quick look now about Colby and Colby answering some questions. So Colby was asked about these and basically he says, what did you see? He says, I don't know what I saw. It's a diamond shape. It Come down on to the top of the trees and it was real bright. And the car got real hot. We had to turn on the air conditioner and then Betty got out and the car started walking towards us. Um, Got out and then I got right back in the car. He didn't want to get hurt. I thought the world was coming to an end, and I thought it would hurt you, and it did. So, I saw some helicopters, counted about 23 helicopters, and saw the lights. Was having bad dreams. Was burned really bad, and was somewhat reluctant to participate in some of these interviews, but. Basically, he goes on to describe the same thing that they did just in in his own way at the time as a child. And so, with these statements, you can clearly see that these people, all three of them encountered something of just immense, uh, just complete bedazzlement to all of them. They say that the sky split open, that this thing seemed to emit immense heat, so much that it burned them. And all of these things... Seem to indicate radiation and uh, being exposed to sort of radiation poisoning, um, which is the case with a lot of people who apparently are exposed to alleged exotic materials. This is something you see that might be somewhat commonplace in UFO literature. Another interesting thing to note about this case again, it's on December 29th, 1980. Halfway around the world, you have a very similar case, at least in as much that they had a strange object uh, within observation. In Suffolk, England, the Bentwaters Royal Air Force Base, an American base on UK soil, over a period of three nights, or more, some would say, from the 26th to 29th, the last night being the most significant, you have um, Air Force personnel, military personnel, witnessing an object of... Uh, irregular design being spotted and even witnessed up close within the Rindlesham Forest. So for those who follow along with UFO literature or reports and research, the Rindlesham Forest incident, some would call like the Roswell of England. It's the most well-known, well-documented UFO case of England. And it happened to be the same exact time of this all the way over here in, in Dayton, uh, uh, Dayton, Texas. You know, And so I think it's important to note that you know, why this might not exactly be the same thing, it's happening at the same time. And these are parts of researching this that you want to take a look at and say, okay, does this have something to do with it? Can we eliminate this? We just take note of it, include it. And there are many other things that people saw. And keep in mind, this is very specific to just these people who encountered this object. A lot of people came forward and said that they also saw something, that they saw the lights, they saw helicopters. And and jumping ahead to the time that, that you had mentioned, when we went and did this little tour a few years back, if you might remember, there was a guy who apparently drove up. They saw the meeting sign for this little meetup we had. And they said, I can't stay. I have to go. I'm on my way. But I just wanted to let you guys know that I was there when that happened. And I saw the helicopters. And it really did happen. Yeah. Uh, I can't stay. But I just wanted to relay that information to you. And we all thought that was really peculiar, pretty interesting, that someone would just volunteer that information. Yeah,
1: yeah exactly. Even
2: all this much time later. So people are around. And when when you find that this is being talked about, which it wasn't publicized for a long time. Again, they didn't tell anybody, and a lot of a lot of people for for months um, wondered, you know, if they would hear something from the media, from news outlets, from anything. Um, it wasn't really the case. There's a lot of other work that was done. They eventually went out and found that cutlass. And there was apparently a handprint kind of pushed into the dash, melted in there from when they braced against it. Um, very curious stuff. It's something that unfortunately is a, you know, they had a really terrible experience with a UFO where some people think it's all wondrous and, and yeah, peaceful yeah. And, and amazing. And that might be the case in some people's experiences, not to bash that at all, but for them it was quite the opposite. And not only that, they didn't in any way relate it to uh, little green men or somehow it being aliens or alien technology or a flying saucer. They didn't think anything of the sort. They immediately said this has to be some kind of government, um, uh technology or vehicle and so they went out of their way in an attempt to uh for you know medical retribution to sue the air force unfortunately it was to no avail they would call the local air force bases military bases and things and they just would all deny ever having anything out there during those times and um of course you know If in the event that the military did ever or would ever come out to say that, yes, we that was us, we're sorry about that, they would, in effect, what you would say is de facto admit to not only that it exists, but it was theirs. And through defense secrecy, when it comes to military, you don't want to do that, mainly because you don't want potential enemies like rogue nations or other adversaries know what kind of technology and capabilities that you have. And that's probably the best reason that one might come up with to say that that's why they didn't come out and say it. Now, that's a little speculative, but here's the the finalization of the report. I'm going to read you this really quick. This is from the book as well. This is from the prologue. They say that basically they think that this... Task this helicopter task force that came in from various areas um, was the most likely scenario. They say that the scenario is a tool used by futurists and military planners to determine possible outcomes in world events based upon all available facts. This scenario was chosen over eight other scenarios as the most likely description of what happened the night of December 29, 1980, when Betty Cash, Vicki Landrum, and Colby Landrum sustained life-threatening injuries during a close encounter with a huge diamond-shaped object in East Texas. And what they're referring to is a massive amount of groups like possibly Blackhawks, Chinooks, a sky crane, light observation vehicles, um, biological gears and equipment, uh, all in an attempt to maintain this, what they call an intruder, which was the object, coming under systemic malfunction. They were looking to get it moved quickly. And, of course, it's, it would make sense to, for there to be retrieval teams of such objects. Um, but there was never any admittance on the behalf of the government or military, unfortunately, um, that they, Betty Cash and Vicky Landrum, they had perished, not immediately, of course, but eventually, um, sustaining lifelong injuries that they never recovered from and as i stated earlier colby landrum is still around he doesn't really speak much on this as as one might understand this is not a fun thing to talk about you know people look at ufo's and things like roswell stuff like that as sort of this kind of pop culture fun concept and you know maybe it can be i don't mean to like put that kind of under bad wraps but it's really important to consider that this isn't always something that's just fun and and lighthearted, but that it's a real issue. And it deals with the technology, deals with the medical issues, it deals with secrecy, and foreknowledge, or if not anything else, at least some knowledge on the government and military's behalf that they have not as of yet disclosed. Um, And it's really important to consider that this is not the only occasion in which something of this um, magnitude has happened. So it's really important that we keep in mind that this is just an instance that we hear about because they went forward. They came forward and finally said, "You know what? As reluctant as we've had uh we've we've been to share this with anyone, this is the reality. We know what happened. We know what caused our illness, despite all the doctors saying otherwise, despite all the medical finalizations and determinations. We know that this is exactly what happened to us and why." So, I just think it's important that out of all of the UFO cases out there, This one stands out. It's one of the most well-documented, most detrimental, and something that is probably one of the most unfortunate of the UFO cases out there that we know about. Keep that in mind, that it was reported. We don't know about the ones that aren't reported. So it's, it's important to think about how that affects our awareness of these situations. So that being said, what do you guys think? It's something that we talk about, you and I, and we went out there, Big Dog, I know that you're interested in these things as well. What are you guys' thoughts about this whole case? And what happened to both Betty Cash, Vicki and her grandson, Colby?
1: I can tell you that my house is probably dead in the middle between uh, 494, which is the loop out there that joins uh, Porter to the highway. So as they were coming down 1485, headed towards Huffman, and then by the time they got to the stop sign— you're talking a good, golly, probably 20, 25 miles. And I just can't imagine having to see this as soon as you get onto 1485 and having to deal with this all the way to 1960. That's 20 miles or more. And I just can't imagine how frightened they must have been. But I don't put anything past our military (laughs) as much as I love our military. They're not going to tell us civilians anything, because just like you said, you know, not every country needs to know our technology, but I don't know who knows. Maybe it was a sputtering UFO that malfunctioned. Maybe it was a military uh, project. We will never know the answer to that, but Whatever it was, it obviously hurt these ladies in a very bad way. And um, I think I've seen out on the Internet somewhere, there's some kind of declassified documents about this case. I've, I've seen it before.
2: Right. Well, there are a few of... Uh, by the way, this was investigated by the military to understand what these ladies encountered and if it was a real threat, and who those helicopters were, and if it was something. And of course, you know, if it was conclusive or not, we don't know. I mean, if, if in the event that some of it was declassified, it may not have all been declassified. Yeah. So we have to keep that in mind, because what they might have found, some of it could have been redacted or just still yeah. classified. But the other thing to, to note is that if you think about all of the military personnel aboard those aerial vehicles we're not talking i mean let's say let's just say two dozen two dozen helicopters or 23 like they said that's not just one person in each of those you've got at least two if not more probably in hazmat suits and everything who knows but that means that and again this is in 1980 so if you fast forward until now let's say even if a third or a fourth of any number of those military personnel are still alive yeah that were there i would think that they saw not only the that you know the landrum the cash and landrum's vehicle i mean you can totally see down there there's a car right in front of this thing you know those are real people down there there has to be someone yeah, out there it, who's it, still alive from that from being in those helicopters who it does know about this it, or Those are Chinook helicopters. Those are those double-bladed
0: helicopters. And they can carry a lot of people and a lot of uh, payload, like Jeeps and Hummers and all that stuff. So, I mean, if there's a bunch of those flying around and they could be full of soldiers, that's a lot of people that could have been involved.
1: But it makes me wonder, too, why did they not get sick?
2: Well, that's that's the thing is we don't know if if they did or not because we have we, they're all totally anonymous to us as far as we can tell they are sort of the men in black we we have no idea who was aboard who was piloting who was navigating who was cargo personnel any like like big dog said those are big uh, helicopters so they can hold a lot of people and it would make sense that they're prepared for something and maybe they knew maybe they were wearing like you know biological gear but you're right. Yeah. I think that it's important to consider that you know, even if a fraction of those people are still alive, if they survived the same things that these people did, that they would at least have the opportunity to confront something, you know, go out there and and be the whistleblower. But we haven't had that yet. I will say, however, yeah. there are some speculative um, gestures at that this object did come from somewhere. Um, you know, this, isn't, this is not my idea. This is something that has been relayed to me by people who seem to think they know. They, they say that maybe this came from some military base like Area 51 or something like that. That sounds a little cliche, of course, but the idea is, like you said, if it was military, we'll, we, maybe we won't be able to know. Even if it, if it wasn't military, which that's equally as challenging of a question to answer— we probably would have even less of an, a possibility of knowing. But like you said, if any of those numbers of people in those helicopters were also sick, we would. We, there's probably not any medical records for them right. uh, that we can access anyway. But
0: I guess it depends on how close you were to it. I mean, those the other people were, were like real close to it and the people in the helicopters were probably not that close.
2: Well, some of them here john's book does document that they that the ladies say that those helicopters they actually said i hope that they it's kind of it shows that they are very compassionate and and, uh, sympathetic about this because they said you know we know what happened to us but we just hope whoever was in those helicopters is okay because some of them were closer than we were so yeah so that just shows that they were actually considerate enough that It doesn't matter who was in those helicopters, if they were in on it or not, that they were hopeful that they were, you know, going to be okay too. And they they say they wouldn't wish this upon their worst enemy. What uh, what happened to them? They said, uh, oh, they didn't die immediately, but they wish they had.
1: Mm. I'm wondering too, though. Back in 1980, for military to scramble to an object, I wonder how far away they were coming from. I, I wonder mean, I what the closest military base was.
0: Fort Hood. They well, were probably that's coming from Fort Hood because there, there's been other reports of people seeing helicopters surrounding uh, UFOs, and
1: they're going in, in and out of Fort Hood.
2: And Colleen, that's a really interesting point. Let me let me uh, go over the prologue here because this is the scenario that I mentioned earlier. This is what they suggest is the most likely case. The helicopter amphibious assault ship USS New Orleans is waiting in the early evening darkness for the return of Operation Snowbird Helicopter Task Force. Moving at a speed of less than five knots, the New Orleans is headed for the rendezvous point in the Gulf of Mexico, several miles south of Crystal Beach, Texas. They had been monitoring the activities of an intruder for more than 24 hours, and the waiting would soon come to an end. Meanwhile, the helicopter task force had flown inland, crossing the Louisiana coastline a few miles up east of Port Arthur, Texas. Turning west, they flew between Port Arthur and Beaumont, Beaumont, carefully avoiding any large towns. After their their failure to rescue the American hostages in uh, Iran in April, the task force had been completely restructured while planning for a second rescue attempt. The new unit of helicopters included Blackhawks, Chinooks, a sky crane, several light observation models, and all but the light observation craft had been modified at an army depot in Pennsylvania by adding special communications, infrared radar guidance, night vision systems, refueling systems, and special long-range fuel tanks. In November, they had been assigned to a unique training exercise that included nights, precision flying in Texas in conjunction with units... From Gray Field at Fort Hood. It was just dumb luck that the New Orleans had been in the Gulf of Mexico when the intruder arrived because their plan to try again to rescue the hostages in Iran training had not been suspended for the holidays. The US government was likely or was keenly aware of the intruders' operations over the continental United States ever since the Holloman Air Force Base landing in New Mexico in 1964 which is also another interesting UFO incident. Government officials had been aware of all major alien intrusions, but only interfered when there was a threat of exposure. Just 24 hours earlier, civilians reported the flight of the large diamond-shaped craft in the skies over Arkansas. They said it was heading south. As usual, however, government officials just made fun of reports. Now it was the night of December 29, 1980, and the intruder had concluded its operations over Louisiana and is heading towards... Uh, into. West Texas, or heading west into Texas. As the huge craft approached the town of Liberty around 8 p.m., it sustained a major systems malfunction. Unless repairs could be made quickly, it would go down somewhere in the East Texas Piney Woods. The intruder's emergency signal was picked up and related to all operating units in Texas and Louisiana via the NORAD, NORAD is uh, in, uh, radar operations, NORAD network in Cheyenne Mountain in Colorado. In minutes, helicopter units from the New Orleans and from Fort Hood were airborne. If the intruder did crash, they were prepared to cordon off the area and keep civilians out while the cleanup operations went underway. The Chinooks carried troops and chemical biological warfare equipment. The Skycrane was ready for heavy lift removal operations while the Blackhawks would control the airspace over and around the crash site. As the intruder passed near Dayton, Texas, its systems were still malfunctioning and a crash appeared imminent. Ground Zero was pinpointed as a site about three miles from Huffman, Texas, a small town, to the northeast of Houston. It would be nearly 9 p.m. before the New Orleans Helicopter Task Force would be able to reach the crash site and several minutes later for the Fort Hood unit. The plan was to either escort or haul the intruder to a safe zone over the Gulf of Mexico. But from miles away, they could see the bright glow from the malfunctioning intruder and were prepared to initiate cleanup operations when they arrived at Huffman. They were not aware that someone on the ground was already in harm's way. So that was their most likely scenario that was chosen. As Wow.
1: The intruder. It sounds so ominous.
2: I know, right? Yeah, that makes you think was it terrestrial technology or was it from somewhere else?
1: Yeah, that's uh, it's hard to say, yeah, because I mean, they do call it the intruder. Um, intruder, someone who's not supposed to be there, (laughs) right? Um, but the way they make it sound, uh, it had some kind of malfunction. We thought maybe they could fix it. Who? Who could fix it?
2: Right.
0: Um, and, and, and the UFO just doesn't sound, like, really advanced. You know, if it's got flames coming out from the bottom of it, it's got to be burning something.
2: Well, and then I, for the I should also mention, that's a good point, Big Dog, because apparently later on, uh, and and you could speak to this as well, because of having been in the area for so long you mentioned this that the roads are different but after this happened a clandestine road crew came out and sort of did a mock-up job of the road in the area that the that they said visibly was burnt and sort of almost liquefied and then solidified again and they came and cleaned it up and i imagine there's probably not much trace of radiation there now but i'm curious every time i've go i've gone there and I've always forgotten the Geiger counter, but it makes me wonder if there's something still detectable because I know you said it's been redone throughout the year several times, but, but yeah, like yeah. you said, big dog, it's, it doesn't seem like, you know, if, if you've got superior alien technology from across the galaxy, just for the sake of, you know, catching on fire when you come over the piney woods doesn't really yeah. make
1: sense. Yeah. You know, I've been here 12 years and they have paved over that road three times. So I don't know why (laughs) we don't ask questions. We just let it. But another interesting thing is that I knew about the case and I knew that they were in New Caney headed towards Dayton. I wasn't aware of where the, the intruder, um, landed, so to speak on the road. I did not know. I knew it was around here somewhere, i've heard stories that it was across the way in the commons um but that's always been woods over there so it didn't make sense to me that people thought oh it happened in the commons like well the commons is a relatively new subdivision there were no roads there at the time it was all um woods so when we went on that tour and the bus stopped right at my street on inland i was thoroughly surprised like why are we stopping here well this is where the craft landed between this street and kingwood drive and i'm like uh i literally live right down the road
2: (laughs) that's such a funny thing that happened i tell that to people when i (laughs) talk about this case because yeah i remember sitting there with you we were both kind of like wow (laughs) this is a little bit too familiar and so Yeah. yeah that was really kind of bizarre
1: yeah and there's a guy that lives in the commons and he didn't know he was with us and he had no idea either yeah, it's an interesting case to say the least. I mean, it's really sad what happened to them. It's sad that, I mean, I hate to say it like this, but sometimes death is your sweet release, you know? And poor Colby, he's still living it, you know? Well,
2: I recommend for anyone who is interested, you can search. I think there's one or two interviews he's done that are on YouTube. I don't remember the names or who. Hosted it, but it's worth seeing because, like I said, he's not out there at conferences. He's not on podcasts. He's not really like trying to make a name. And why would he? I think that you know it goes to show that the integrity of of his character and his account that he doesn't really want much to do with this at all because it absolutely it changed his and his family's life forever. And you know, imagine having to be going through school. He was only seven when this happened. So it's like you know, you still got. 10 more years of school everyone's yeah. going to talk and you know I've and and you guys will probably know who I'm talking about I we've you come across people now and then with, with names you might recognize well having come across someone kind of within our social circle with the last name Landrum I kind of thought I'd mention well you wouldn't happen to be related to you know Vicky yeah. or Colby Landrum and then they say you know what I would get asked that all the time around these parts so I think that's kind of an interesting aspect of this that not many people you know well it is a very well known UFO case in some ways but in others it's sort of a local um, phenomenon that you know if if you were part of that around that area and then eventually caught wind of something and your name was Colby Landrum that's going to be a hard thing to deal with when you're going to school as a teenager
1: and I'm wondering if there's a page out there, maybe a Facebook page about the case. Um, I'm on a page. It's uh, another case that, uh, we're going to talk about on another show, but it's the, uh, Camp Scott Girl Scout murders. And there's a page and you will see people joining the page saying, Hey, when I was a kid, I was interviewed by the police when this happened because my dad knew the killer or this alleged killer. So you start seeing all these people coming out now. So I'm wondering if there's such a page and if there's people that are saying, Hey, I was his neighbor or, Oh, Oh wait, I know someone. Hold on. My memory's coming back. My friend, Cindy Gidry, um, she used to live a few doors down from me. I think one of her friend's mothers was a nurse at the hospital where Betty and Vicky were.
2: yeah, see, there's there's some degree of separation, yeah, where where you know, when the area where it happened with the same kind of uh, community, I think that's that's one of the greatest things we have at our disposal as researchers, as investigators is. These people are still alive, some of them anyway. You know. yeah. And we can talk to them if they're willing. And if we give them, or maybe not we give them, if if we share with them that there is a supportive network of people that will not ridicule them, won't, won't scrutinize them in, in whatever way that maybe has, has happened to them before, that they'd be more willing to open up. Just like that guy who just out of the blue came up and said, yeah. I was there, I saw the helicopters, it really happened, but sorry, I got to go. He, you know, how often does that guy think about that? Was that the first time he's talked about it in years or does he think about it every night? You know, we don't know. And it it wasn't unless until he saw that sign for the meetup that he said anything. Otherwise, you know, people, you never know when they're going to come out of the woodwork.
1: Yeah, Yeah. I'd be real interested in (laughs) finding someone that would talk that was in one of those helicopters.
2: Yeah. That would be that would be the people to to really know what happened. Um, yeah, we don't know if we'll ever get that, but I think that would be a really great opportunity for some at least some kind of uh, resolve in this whole thing. So let's hope that we get something like that at some point. I I don't know if it'll happen, but we'll see. Yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely. Well, Daniel, we sure appreciate you coming on the show. This is this was a great um that was a great show in my opinion i'm always interested in (laughs) ufos even though i don't really talk about it a lot because honestly it just it scares me to no end really it does you know even though i'm out there traipsing around in the woods looking for bigfoot the thought of something like that happening is terrifying to me
0: yeah freaky. Uh, I think that's one of my fascinations about it.
1: It's, it's scary. Yeah, it is. Well, thank well, you, Daniel. We really appreciate it.
2: I really had a great time with you guys. It went by super quick, and you know what? I think that we could all agree it's the mystery that drives us to look into these things. It makes us curious, and we'd like to be able to figure out what's going on with these things, whether it's UFOs, Bigfoot, strange activity, the paranormal mysterious phenomena it's always something that makes us wonder what's really going on what's really out there and what can we really understand about these issues so I appreciate what you guys are doing with this show I think it's what we really need to be doing as a group of friends in this community to help each other and to show that there are some things that we don't know about and we need to try to figure it out and work together so thank you both big dog and Anne, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing both of you soon and by the way here's uh something i really hope to be able to mention for you and i was just with and uh, talking with uh, michael waldy and he is <laughs> getting your the squasher stick yes, back in is. action and he's got some great stuff he's doing for that uh and uh so i just thought i'd throw that out there shout out to him he's doing some great work stuff but uh yeah what a great show thank you guys it's been an honor thank you. i look forward to seeing both of you in person really soon and yeah, uh yeah. thanks
1: thank you This episode of Mysterious Woods was brought to you by Cryptid Chick. For all your cryptid gear, visit www.cryptidchick.com. We'd like to thank Daniel Allen Jones for being on the show and giving us a little bit more insight into the Cash Landrum case. And don't forget, Squatch Dogs will be at the Texas Bigfoot Conference next weekend, October 16th through the 18th in Jefferson, Texas. We will be a vendor once again doing our Sasquatch sessions. So if you have a story that you would like to tell, come on out and find us in the vendor area. And don't forget, Saturday night, Campfire Kenny of Squatch Dogs will be doing... His annual bonfire. And folks, that should be happening around 10 30 p.m. We will also be sponsoring the 2020 Fout Monster Halloween Bash along with Keith Crabtree, William Lunsford, and Night Callers Bigfoot Radio. And this event is happening in Smith Park, Falk, Arkansas, October 30th through November 1st. We hope to see you there. And thank you once again for listening to Mysterious Woods.
0: Thanks for listening to Mysterious Woods, a podcast by Squatch Dogs. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Until then, be very afraid of the dark.